You're listening to The Science of Storytelling, presented by Pressboard, a show about marketing, media, and the people making it happen. Your host is Jared Grimm. On today's Science of Storytelling episode, I'm chatting with Lloyd D'Souza, Executive Creative Director and Head of Content Development, Branded Entertainment at Condé Nast. We're going to chat about one of the biggest career pivots I've ever seen, going from med school to independent filmmaking to one of the largest media companies in the world. If you like this episode, please leave us a comment. Let me know what you think. Remember to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss an episode. Now, enjoy the show. Lloyd, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad to have you on here. It's going to be fun today. Yeah. I, uh, I'm going to dig into your role at Condé Nast in a bit, but I always find it interesting the path that people take mm-hmm. to get into these roles. I don't know. What was your what was your dream when you were a kid? What was the job you were going to get into? I mean, when I was a kid, a kid kid, I thought I'd be an astronaut. Hmm. But um, that didn't happen. How far? So. <laughs> Not very far at no, all. You uh, but, I, you know, I for the longest time, I thought I was going to be uh, a doctor like my dad. Mm-hmm. So uh, I went to UCLA and uh, was pre-med there and did a lot of, uh, you know, did, did that whole track um did some my dad was a doctor did some research in parkinson's disease and um kind of got almost to the end when i realized that's not what i wanted to do uh so i kind of started trying to figure out what i wanted to do um i knew i liked to write i knew i liked to create um the idea of making movies and films was so far removed uh you know as i I grew up in new orleans the movie industry was was like like you, no one ever thought like, oh, I'm going to go make movies uh, uh, back in like the, the, the 80s in New Orleans. So um, I was kind of exploring what I wanted to do. And uh, I was at the time um, working in college at the same time as a, at a restaurant. And someone who had left the restaurant had gotten a job working for a producer. Uh, and he needed an intern. And it was at the Warner Brothers studio lot. So I took that internship. I was like, look. I don't know where I'm going to end up after school. Uh, this might be while I'm here in LA, why not do this? You know? So I went and honestly, like the, the first day I walked onto the studio lot, I was like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Wow. Um, what was it? What was it about walking on that lot? I don't know. It was just, it was just like the energy. It was, um, you, you know, listening to people talk about stories, listening to like the business of, of show business too was very fascinating to me, how things got made, um, re- this kind of frantic anxiety that was also, you know, uh, foundationally built on just the, the idea that like everyone felt really lucky to be working and what they were doing because they all seemed to love making movies or TV. Um, and I think that was something I was searching for. Uh, and I liked telling stories. I liked being part of that. So when I got into like, when I started interning and I started reading screenplays and getting into understanding like what story development really was, uh, for this screen, I, it was just something just like lit inside me. What did your family think about this? This is a a big departure. (laughs) Uh, my family was not stoked on this, but, um, you know, they, They've always instilled in in, in me and, and my sisters in in following following your dreams and following what you love. I think that's what they did, um, and they achieved a lot doing that. And so, 
you know, it was always about just, you know, whatever you do, like put in the hours. Uh, and if you love what you're doing, it won't feel like that. And success will come to you. Nice. Uh, is it the creative side of film that appealed to you that, you know, being a doctor maybe didn't? Because uh, I think, you know, I, I, the thing that didn't, it's not that it didn't appeal to me to be a doctor. I think I, when I looked at being in medicine, it was very much about um, having a relationship with patients and with people. And uh, when I did research, uh, I, you know, shadowed a, a really top neurologist in Louisiana for a summer doing research on Parkinson's disease. And so I was there at the ground floor where you'd have those patient interactions. And I knew that if I did anything, it would have to be something challenging like neurology. And the thing with neurology is you're dealing with a lot of conditions where there is no cure. It's about treatment. And I think, uh, I think maybe I'm too empathetic that I started connecting too much. And, and taking kind of these, taking this pain with me a little bit. And I remember my, uh, the doctor I was shadowing, who, who was, you know, one of, one of my mentors, uh, he, he said, like, if this is, if you're taking this home, this might not be something you should do because this is a hard job. So I started considering other paths in medicine. And then that's when I kind of realized, I don't know if I really want to do this. I want to interact with people. I want to do something that affects people, but maybe this isn't it, and started really looking at what I wanted to create for myself. Makes sense. So you have this internship, mm -hmm. and then where do you go from there? Uh, so had the internship, and then I the the guy that was that hired me as intern ended up leaving, and the producer Paul Hall um, ended up hiring me right when he was uh, finishing up uh, Shaft Two with Samuel L. Jackson. And uh, I worked with him for like two years and just kind of worked up through development. Started, he started trusting me with screenplays, sitting in the room with writers, sitting one-on-one -on -one with writers, uh, going and finding my own material um, and developing stories, uh, working with our agents uh, in tapping directors to come in and attach them and, and just kind of going through the whole development process while he had his first look deal at, at Warner Brothers. And so it was like a a really fast crash course on how movies get made in the studio system. Uh, it was also around that time independent films started becoming something. And so I stepped out from the studio because I, I, around the time that I was like developing everyone else's stories, I was like, I want to be, I want to sit where the writer is sitting. Um, and so I left to write. And so I was, you know, I'd get little jobs here and there doing rewrites. Um, I, I never signed with the manager, but I had a few managers that would hip pocket me, which means they would, they wouldn't officially sign me, but they would like toss me at jobs. They felt like, you know, my writing style felt worked or like to help me grow as a writer. Um, and it was a lot of, you know, it was that, that typical kind of Hollywood screenwriter story of like couch surfing on friends places just to kind of do what you love and try to get it out there. Um, and then from that, I, you know, I went back to I, I shooting and, and directing and be able to create your own things became more accessible with digital film. Um, and so I went back to film school at the L.A. Film School for a year just for the director's program. And it's really that was like a crash course and everything from like how, what it what it was like to actually work on set to make your own thing and, and find funding for your own thing. Uh, and so I did a couple short films that got a few festival runs, and I started directing music and videos. And these are your own. You're yeah. writing your own stuff now. You're entering it into Competition. competitions. Yeah. What's that like? Uh, it was exciting. I mean, I remember one of the first 
films I did premiered at the Malibu International Film Festival, and it was like the weekend. It also happened to be like the weekend of my birthday, and I had a lot of people in town, and um, we all went to this big theater, and it was just like the feeling of like watching your thing on this massive screen with like people you know, like cheering after was just like, that's something I'll carry with me for the rest of my life. My cousin is a screenwriter and she's just had her first film that she's created mm -hmm. and we've gone through the process with her and it, it is this incredible, once we saw the, I forget the rough cut mm -hmm. of it, I was like, Rochelle, like you made a movie, yeah. like a real movie, like these movies that the rest, it just <laughs> yeah. seems so uh, distant from everyone else's job that's out there. We watch movies yeah, right? and I watch TV shows, but I don't really think about the people that are making it and that's part of their job and they're just doing that every day and then this thing ends up on a screen in front of people and they enjoy it yeah that's, yeah, a, yeah. that's a cool feeling yeah and so after that i uh you know i i did miss the the interaction with people though because um kind of being an independent filmmaker is, is can be a solitary life uh i mean you have your friends your crew you always work with but i missed new ideas and developing other ideas, other people's ideas. So I started working at an independent film company um, and was a development executive there doing kind of what I was doing at Warner Brothers, but like on a more micro level um, and being more involved in finding financing. So I think that's where I learned a little bit about the sales of film, like being able to sell your idea, not sell your idea as an artist, but sell your idea as like a business person. Um, and to, to both financiers and to distributors, like getting people to pay for the thing and then getting people to show the thing, um, finding the eyeballs. So I, I enjoy that. And around that time, I think like a few things hit all at the same time. Um, I, I was working there. I started directing more, getting a lot more gigs around that time is when like fashion films started becoming a thing. And I started shooting with a lot of up and coming labels in L.A. that I knew. I had friends working for who were starting their own lines. And then around that time, a, a spec script of mine had gotten around. And this um, producer, Mark Johnson, who you know produced Rain Man and did the Narnia movies, uh, tapped me to adapt a Russian sci-fi novel. And so I worked, with, uh, I worked directly with him when he was available, but really was kind of uh, taken through the process with, this, uh, with one of his producers, Mark Syriac, who actually runs Barry Jenkins' company now, Pastel. And we, you know, it was about a year long process of adapting this Russian novel with, you know, this Russian novelist who was very enamored with his own work. And so it was, uh, it, it was an interesting process because it was something I always wanted to do, adapt another person's novel and ad adapt another piece of work. Um, and I think in your head, you're like, oh, you get this book and then just adapt it. And like you turn in a screenplay and you'll get notes back. But, you know, an author is very involved in his first work, and he should be. Uh, and so there was a lot of like compromise, push and pull, really figuring it out. And it spent like a year doing that, which was also at the time in like such a great time because Mark was also about to launch Breaking Bad with Vince Gilligan. So I'd go in the office, and Vince would be there. And you know, Vince, I knew Vince as a writer, I knew his work, but Vince Gilligan wasn't what people know Vince Gilligan as now and so it was just now thinking back on it it was just such a an awesome time as as a writer to be able to talk to someone like that about like what you were writing and have him give you like notes and ideas and how you should approach the situation and at that time was there a feeling that Breaking Bad was going to become what it was or was it just another show that may or may not make it I, I think everyone felt it was special yeah yeah I mean I think you know Brian and and uh, 
Aaron and Paul were so so great and was really excited. And I remember when the uh, I had finished you know my my run writing that that adaptation around the time the pilot launched. And I remember everyone thinking like like seeing the pilot in that last scene where he's like holding the gun and he's like recording himself and the RV is like in the dirt and he's standing in his underwear. I think that ended and everyone was like, this is going to be huge. Yeah. And so you're doing screenplays at this time yeah. and you're producing uh, independent films. Yeah. You're at an independent film. Yeah, we were at, at that time we were working with, uh, we were, we actually had gotten funding and we were also shooting uh, a film with Michael Whitehorn, who who's the creator of King of Queens with uh, Jenna Fisher, uh, Chris O'Donnell. And it was, it was like a small indie kind of emotional film that he, he took a little bit of, of what happened in his life, put it in into this uh, kind of New York story. And, you know, it was it was well received. It got distribution, which is nice. And, um, you know, it was interesting seeing that process and around the time I was directing a bit. But I think what what happened is like everything kind of hit all at once for me where I'd done my run at adapting the screenplay. It started going through another revision with the bigger studio writer, got I think a uh, studio picked it up and then it was kind of shelved. And so I was like, oh, I spent like a year and a half of my life like doing this thing that never, never saw the light of day. You know, the movie with Michael took, you know, a few years to get made. Um, and then, you know, directing little things was nice, but I felt like I wasn't really, I, I wanted to see my thing on the big screen again. I wanted to see what I was creating. And so I had a friend who had started a, uh, a small ad company um, doing broadcast commercial work and started they started getting into this thing called branded content and I they needed a creative producer they had a lot of uh, like really executional producers but they wanted someone who could help them with treatments make them more robust make them more creative tell more of a story and what they were doing and so I went over there and it was it was awesome because everything we worked on was like a two-month cycle and then it was up on TV or it was on the internet and I was seeing the things I was making and actually having a hand in and I, that really excited me which is funny because I think when I first got in the industry, it was always like, oh, you're either going to do commercials or you're going to do films. You're not, it's either story or it's not. Um, and this was like, as branded content started becoming a thing, there was this kind of meld where it is storytelling. Um, it is this short form storytelling that can be powerful or can have an impact, can make you laugh, can make you come back. Um, and so I did that for a while. Uh, and then me and my buddy who was a partner of that company, we both, uh, we joined a bigger company basically started their West Coast office, uh, ran that for a couple of years, and then me and him and another partner there left and started our own company, um, which was great having our own company because then it was like, you know, that was like the the pinnacle of like put in the hours. That was like I was I was doing help, like basically doing legal and being the accountant, and I was the EP and, and you know, also writing, and we got a deal with Disney that we did a, a pilot for, and we were managing seven directors and we were running like a post-production business to that was kind of like our bread and butter as far as like income. And it was, that was wonderful because it was like your own thing. And it was like a combination of like everything I had been doing, which was creative and business. It was everything that kind of excited me. Um, and that we did that for a couple of years. And I think, you know, around that time, branded content started becoming like a really big thing. And where are we now? What year are we? Uh, this is probably about, seven years ago yeah yeah seven eight years ago so and then um i had at the time met um someone who had become the chief commercial officer at vox media and um she had hit me up around fortuitously like the same exact time like me and my partners were looking at our business and i think the sense was that 
the business was better as a focusing more on the post-production as a vendor business about finding new business that way and less less growing like the creative because I took a little too much investment and you know we were kind of like hit a hit a bit of a wall and I was having a little bit of an existential do I want to keep building this or what do I want to do do I want to try something new I'd been in LA for about 16 years at that point um and she was in New York and she gave me a call and, and said I need a, an executive producer here because Brandon content's blowing up and uh it'd be, it would help to have some of your leadership over here so I uh you know I took the bait and I came to New York and I was there a year and a half and uh I'm not gonna say it was a it was a crash course in branded content because I understood how to make that and I knew how to, I very much knew how to work with advertisers especially working in broadcast working with agencies it was more of a crash course in working with the publisher um having an understanding of what that balance of editorial is and branded is um where those lines can and can't cross working with um you know Branded content is also, as much as it is marketing for a client, it is also marketing for the publisher. So you have to really understand what the editors and chiefs are saying and, and make sure you're not creating something that kind of goes against what their, you know, yearly goals are as far as like what the voice of the brand is. So that was that was great. And, you know, everyone that worked at uh, Vox Media, like all the EICs were, were very welcoming and loved having conversations about what we're doing in video because I think around that time it was very new for them. And... Um, and so I did that for a year and a half. Then I left because I, I, I was unsure. I, I kind of wanted to do something bigger. I kind of wanted to do something of my own again. And uh, I consulted for a while with some sports agencies on their in-house like content teams. Uh, I did some work with Axios. And then Condé Nast came calling. Um, and I have like an incredible amount of respect for Condé Nast. I think, you know, it's a it's, it's brands predate me. I think... Um, they've always been held at a high level for me. So it was when I received that call it was great. And it was around the time and initially they wanted me to come and help out on the, the lifestyle brands as EP and a creative director. And, and that included Bon Appetit, which as you know, you know, uh, Matt Ducker over there who, who kind of built that whole, um, that video foundation of Bon Appetit did an amazing job where it's, it's kind of like a monster in the industry. Now it's, it's literally like a new food network. Um, with personalities, with um, it's it, people compare like every episode is like taking a peek at like the office, but in a test kitchen. Um, and so being a part of that and around that uh, as it was blowing up and being able to tap into that um, was exciting. And then obviously I loved the travel space and, uh, you know, everything that was going on. And I knew around a few months into it that, you know, I had I wanted to do something with my background with working with sports agencies and, and my love for sports that GQ was going to be launching a sports uh, vertical. And I got involved in that. And, you know, through all this, I was kind of building the business internally, like how how we spoke about branded content. You know, I think the history of Kanye Nast branded side is it's it's kind of like four pillars. They had you know 23 studios in the or 23 stories in the past, which was their branded content arm that really just focused on doing content for brands. Um, you know, you had these, these published publications that had been around for a hundred years and had like a, an established voice and voices as new editors and chiefs came in and kind of put their, their stamp on it. Um, you had the, the digital business, um, that was growing and growing a new audience. And then you had, uh, Connie Nass Entertainment, which was, you know, had established like digital video in such a strong way on YouTube and like formatted 
great formats that came from our uh, Joe Sabia, who created 73 Questions. Uh, scaling that across YouTube for like billions of views. You had um, the editorial teams getting involved in like what they wanted their voice to be in video. You have an, an entirely new audience coming in through that. And then they also were doing things in development in television and film, you know, like Old Man and the Gun with Robert Redford, uh, Last Chance You on Netflix. And so I came in at a time where they had made the right investments to grow these strong pillars. And um, I'm fortunate enough to be now in a position where I'm helping connect all those dots. So it's not just a branded content studio that an advertiser is working with. They're actually working with like a real media studio. We'll be back to the episode in just a few seconds. But first, we have some exciting news for you. At Pressboard, we love stories, but we know how hard it can be to measure them. So we're here to help, whether it's a sponsored article on a news site, an Instagram post from an influencer, or a video on YouTube. Our tech measures it all. Pressboard is already trusted by Spotify, Intel, NBC Universal, Hearst, and thousands more. And here's the big news. Listeners of the podcast can try out the Pressboard platform for free. Just email info at pressboardmedia.com right now. All right, let's get back to the show. I'm interested in the idea of branded entertainment. Yeah. If that's different than branded content or sponsored content. Yeah, yeah. I think it's uh, you know, we call it branded entertainment because it isn't just a it isn't just a branded content studio. I mean, we're working we're co-curating things with uh, advertising partners with our our edit dev teams that live organically on YouTube. Um, we are talking actively with partners who want to develop feature films. Um, so it isn't, it isn't content for content's sake. It's entertainment for an audience. Um, Condé Nast has spent 100 years building an audience through print. Uh, Condé Nast Entertainment has rapidly built a very rabid audience that isn't people who just happen to see our stuff. They're people who come to our stuff, have expectations of quality, of, of formats, of, of celebrity, of storytelling. And so you have to hit that audience and hitting that audience is much more valuable than just throwing content out there and trying to achieve scale through ad buys. Mm. And I think something that must be nice coming from your independent film days where mm -hmm. you're hunting for funding, yeah, right? Like you're, <laughs> you're creating this, I've got this great idea, now I need to raise some money around this idea. This is a bit of a reverse. It's the funding is there. Yeah. The funding comes from the advertiser and yeah. the budgets can be significant if you compare them yeah, to like yeah. trying to raise a little bit of money for an independent film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it is still, I mean, it still is a little bit of, you, you have to sell the idea though. You know, the, the funding is there. You know it exists. You're not looking for the financiers. Now it's just the best part of the sale, which is convincing the people with the money that the idea is good. Uh, and you're not just convincing that the idea is good because it's going to just achieve their KPIs, you're convincing them the idea is good because our audience is going to love it. And our audience will buy into it. And our audience will, will they'll gain brand affinity through our audience, which loves what we put out. And, you know, and we'll also, you know, we have so many platforms, we can hit all the KPIs depending on if it's long form on YouTube or, you know, taking that content or what we shoot that ends up on the cutting room floor, repackaging it and putting it on social to drive more engagement or more, you know, click throughs or, you know, drive 
basically drive tune in also to the long form. It's about creating this content ecosystem where we're capturing our audience all over the place and giving them the message a little differently to achieve the goals of our our uh, client. Yeah. I want to talk about one of those campaigns, but I should probably let everyone know that you're not 85 years old. Like based on this experience, <laughs> you're a doctor. And you like all these, it sounds like you must be 100 years old, right? <laughs> no. He's not. I can, I can vouch for that. Uh, but you have a really interesting career path. Thank like you. To, and and I, I've seen people get into branded content from, from different paths. So either they're coming in from this creative filmmaking, storytelling, sometimes they're journalists, they come from that story creation side, or they come in from the advertising side, which is where I came into it from. I, I love advertising. I'm like this weird kid that loved <laughs> advertising when I was 13 years old. Uh, we had this board game. There's this board game. I'm from, I'm an 80s kid. Too, so <laughs> they had this board game that was called, oh, I can't remember what it was called, but the game would happen during the commercials. Mm-hmm. And so you had these cards and you'd have to, like you'd get a card and it would be a potato or a yeah. car. And then if your commercial came up, then you would win the game. No one would play it with me. <laughs> it was just like, but my parents got it for me when I was like 12 years old or 13 years old. That's how into advertising yeah. it was. So I came in that route. And what I loved about branded content was the idea that it wasn't banner ads. Mm -hmm. I I just hated where advertising had gone. And for a kid that fell in love with it when, you know, Nike was just coming out with Just Do It at the time. Uh, Apple had just, they had their 1984 ad. Like that's the time that I grew up with Mm -hmm. ads. And then all of a sudden we're doing programmatic 300 by 250 big box ads. Um, So I fell in love with it because it approached this. It was much more creative, much more interesting way to tell a story. Uh, And sounds like you came into it from this entertainment path, which is mm-hmm. really cool too. Let's talk about a campaign, um, just to kind of bring this into, distill <laughs> it down into, um, I like um, this, we're talking about Bon Appetit, yeah. and there's a program that you did with Field Roast. Yeah. Yeah, can you talk about that one? Yeah, uh, that's one we're particularly proud of. It. Uh, we actually just uh, screened it at Sundance at the Brand Storytelling. No yeah. Um, with with Roy Choi was there, did a panel with him. So we, you know, we, we met with Spark Foundry on this, uh, the agency and Greenleaf, um, which is Field Roast team um, in Chicago. And we kind of pitched them this idea. They wanted, they had come up with this concept of gather what's good and they wanted to reach new consumers. And, and honestly, Field Roast hadn't spent money on content. Like this was completely new to them and they were going to, they were going to bet big on content and content that work and drove awareness and drove a consumer to want to go out and, and try field roast, not because they wanted to change their diet, but because they want to add it or experiment a little bit or, or try something new. And so we, what we did was we wanted to tap in what Bon Appetit did best, which is, you know, Bon Appetit finds new chefs, new restaurants, and really wants to tell their story because we want to bring our audience, bring our audience new food experiences, uh, as well as teach them to cook. And so there's this, there's this great opportunity to tell a story, but then also have utility around it. So what we did was, you know, we we presented an idea of working with Roy Choi, who, you know, philosophically we love. I think it's important. I think you have to have a responsibility of the people that you put on screen to to have some value beyond just a name. And I think Roy Choi really does that for this program because it is he's kind of rediscovered or, or, or he, he's kind of reevaluating how he eats, um, looking at more plant based solutions. And so we're catching him at this time when he's making this this paradigm shift, and he's you know a, an icon in Los Angeles, if not the world. And um, 
so we worked with him and he was excited about about field roast we presented this idea of working with roy and then tapping into uh restaurants that have been featured in bon appetit like real up-and-comers uh from like bon appetit's best new restaurants and hot 10 who had a story to tell had a heritage story to tell and so you know we presented this idea of roy going to meet these chefs and ha- and challenging them to take like one heritage dish that they have and remake it with field roast and like how would you do that like replace the meat with something else but not just as a meat replacement like really find out the reason why and how by replacing the meat how they're still retaining the cultural heritage behind what's in the meal in that process we worked with bon appetit you know recipe developers and we were able to take that recipe recreate it for our audience we created um, these videos called courses videos that we have that are basically, you know, they're our version of like the hands and pans um, shot a little differently than your top down, but really show how to make the thing. And, and we created a hub. So we have these great long stories where Roy goes in, uh, gets to know these chefs, learns how they're replacing the meal, how they're retaining their heritage. And then, you know, and this was actually Roy's idea. Uh, and this is why we love it's just the, pro- the natural process of collaboration when you create something. Um, you know, we like to treat our agencies and our, 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 our clients as executive producers as well. We like to, when we have talent like Roy, it, it's not telling him what he needs to do. It's asking what he wants to do. Um, and he obviously has a bunch of TV shows and he's like, I don't want this to just be me and the chef because I kind of do that already. Let's gather what's good. Let's get some people in there. I know some people, like in Seattle was the first one. He's like, I know some people, some musicians in Seattle. Eduardo Jordan, who's there, I'm sure he has a bunch of friends. The chef from June Baby. So the last act of it is just bringing all these people together and having them try this dish along with the other dishes at the restaurant. And it's the, the gather with good, what's good ethos. And and then so we have this great story that, you know, it, it, it took a little convincing to the agency and the client that let's, let's go long form with this because that's what works on Bon Appetit. And I think... You know, a lot of branded content, a lot of a lot of our partners don't see value in long form because it's just not something that's done or it's not been done successfully. But this goes back to us developing an audience. Our Bon Appetit audience watches like 10 plus minutes per video that's on Bon Appetit. So they're used to this. There's there's an expectation that we're going to bring them something entertaining for a long period of time and they'll stick around and watch. Um, so it ch- challenges our, our branded teams to develop along with them something that that hits all these points so we have this deep storytelling that brings you brings the audience in and on that same hub or on social it drives you to these courses videos where it's like you just watch this whole thing you've discovered the story behind the dish and then what the field roast replacement is and how it tastes and how it affects the people around them here's how you can make it yourself and it's a utility that then drives the uh, the consumer to want to go make it himself so it's doing both what the the client wanted to do, which was, you know, drive awareness, really elevate the brand, but then get consumers to to want to make the thing and go out and try field roast, and it does what Bon Appetit wants to do, which is drive an audience, get them to stick around for a long time, really love the story of cooking, but then get them go out and cook. Yeah, I watched it. I I love cooking shows. I can watch <laughs> like I'm. It's my. I'm a very amateur chef I would say. <laughs> but I love it I really yeah. enjoy it it's a passion so and there's a lot of cooking shows out there but I'll watch them all yeah and I watch this one and sometimes to me the the sign of good branded entertainment or branded content is that you forget that it's being sponsored in mm-hmm. any way and it just feels it just felt like a cooking show yeah. they were making this uh, one and it was there was apple in the sausage 
And I just liked how they spoke about it. I love how chefs speak about food. Yeah. Just the way that they describe it. Yeah, it just yeah. felt really natural. Roy felt like he truly believed in the idea. It didn't mm-hmm. feel like uh, he was separate from it. Uh, and it's interesting that they had recipes afterwards because people like me like to do a fairly poor job of recreating <laughs> that. Uh, but that's the fun of it, right? Yeah. You make some mistakes and you learn as you go. Yeah. How do you define success of a program like that? Um, you know, I think there's obviously, you know, the on paper, the KPIs, like what, what you've hit. Did you get the audience? Did you get the views? The retention rate, which was incredible for this, for the, for the long forms. But um, honestly, for me personally, success is always de- defined coming directly from the clients we work with and then saying or sending that email that this is amazing, that, that before the results even happen, um, like the CMO will send an email and say, this is some of the best content we've ever created with you guys before the rap reports come in, them saying, we want to do this again with you. That to me is the definition of success for, for branded entertainment that you've, you've hit something the intent is always to entertain with when you make video and film. I think that that's always it. From the very beginning when I started this, it was always like the immediate response. How did it make someone feel? And if the immediate response is a positive from your clients because it goes beyond, they stop think they have themselves stopped thinking about the metrics and the KPI and have just enjoyed the content for what it is, I think that's success. I love that. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a great way to, to close this off, just this... You followed this path. The really interesting thing is you're still ending up at Sundance and Cannes. You're just <laughs> yeah. there, like, you're there the week later, yeah. right? the week after that. But it just shows how closely branded entertainment and branded content is to regular entertainment mm-hmm. versus being, you know, compared to a display ad or some e-newsletter or something yeah. like that. So uh, incredible journey. Conde is super lucky to have... Uh, and they recruit, obviously, they attract people like you yeah. to these brands because they're so well-known. I mean, a lot of people have an entry brand into Condé, so Wired is mine. I'm yeah. a tech geek, so I've always loved Wired, uh, and that was my entry point. Did you have an entry point brand into Condé? Uh, you know, it was a little bit It was a little bit of like uh, Condé Nast Traveler because I love to travel, GQ. Um, I, I grew up with GQ, and then uh, Bon Appetit because just – that was like a little bit of my mom's Bible growing up. Yeah, um, yeah so it, it was that. And it's, it's the brands themselves have, have done so much for me as I build my team of creatives under me. I have about, you know, uh, 11 creative directors who come from various different backgrounds, not just, just ad backgrounds, but, you know, I have a stand-up comedian. I have a music video director. I have uh, a girl who has a film coming out in Tribeca about female DJs. Uh, I have someone who's helped launch major major brands in like uh, the alternative spaces, and it's they they kind of come into Kanye Nast not because they're looking for a job, they come in because they want to work for Kanye Nast. They see what we're doing in video, they see what we're doing creatively, um, and they see an opportunity that's more than just creating more branded content. They see an opportunity to really grow a business. Um, grow a business within a business, entertain people, and once again, entertain an audience that they feel they're a part of. What does the future of this look like? Let's fast forward five years. What yeah. does branded entertainment look like? What does Condé Nast start to look like? Yeah, I mean, you know, we continue to invest heavily in video. Um, Condé Nast has become kind of unified now as like a global company. 
uh, under our CEO, Roger. So what we're doing is finding out, you know, we're, we're just starting to understand in video, how do you speak to an audience on a global level? How does, you know, how does GQ France speak differently to an, their audience versus GQ Britain versus what we're doing in GQ proper in, in America? Um, and so it's, it's a little bit of connecting those dots to create more global entertainment. Um, and then, you know, we're going to continue to invest in feature films and television, but like more and more brands are looking that direction as well. I mean, you know, you see what UM Studios did with J and J with Ward Nine that you know they want it can with um, stuff like that should and will be happening a little bit more. And I think really it is about like I said, what the the pillars that Kanye has created is an opportunity for a brand not to take a bet just on one thing and have it live some one place. It's like what we did with Field Roast is you take a bet on a long form, but we have an ability to hit an audience in social with utility, and we have an ability to have you in print. We have, It's this ecosystem of talking to a consumer that's not just taking one piece of content and just putting the same piece on every platform. It's about creating a narrative. So it's almost like you can we can create a narrative with a brand, a story with a brand, and a little bit it's a choose-your-own-adventure. Like we our audience can find one piece of it and it might be like the feature film we create with them or the feature doc, but there are other pieces that can exist. That's footage, not from there that exists on social. So you can almost like find the brand story in a bigger way as you tap all our, our points, or you can find it the way you would normally find content, but that is the brand and it's speaking to you. Yeah. I love this direction that we're going with mm-hmm. uh, moving away from it's getting back to what I fell in love with, with advertising and marketing was these, big ideas that could live in lots of places and became, you know, water cooler talk yeah. around there. Uh, before I let you go, I like to, we have a, do a book club and a movie club <laughs> at Press for it. So yeah. do you have a favorite book or favorite movie you could recommend? Uh, my favorite, I mean, still one of my favorite books is um, Less Than Zero by Brad Easton Ellis. Uh, it's kind of a, if you know Brad Easton Ellis' work like American Psycho and Glamorama, it's, you know, very first person stream of conscious, but I remember reading it while, uh, you know, before I went to LA from high school and, um, it really kind of captured the kind of nihilism and the, the, the odd world that is Los Angeles. Cause it's about a kid who, who goes to college on the East coast and comes back for Christmas to LA and like everything's changed in three months. Um, and I just, I, I found like it's just like the stream of conscious storytelling just really appealed to me and it kind of took form in me through college when I was writing my own stuff and it really kind of affected me as a storyteller and I've always been a fan of his. And then movie, movie's tough because there are just so many that I can name. You know, I'll only name like recent. I I really loved um, 1917 just because, you know, as much as like I love storytelling, I'm also like a film nerd as far as execution. Mm And so seeing something that, that like story-wise was fascinating and like drew me in, but just being absolutely blown away by just cinematographic execution is just like the science of filmmaking is as fascinating to me sometimes as the art of storytelling. Yeah, that's some excellent recommendations. And I think we're happy that you never finished medical <laughs> school after all. So thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into the Science of Storytelling. Don't forget to leave us a comment. We love hearing from you.
We have a ton more episodes coming up this season with some absolutely amazing guests. So make sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss a single one. See you next time.